All right, go and grab your Bibles and open up with me to 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8. Um, just to, to sort of situate you or resituate you, I guess, on the timeline of what's going on. The events that we're studying right now in 2 Kings are happening about 850 years before the birth of Jesus. Okay, so we're uh, almost a whole millennium before Jesus comes on the scene. And uh, we're in one of those tragic periods of Israelite history when the nation of Israel has split into two nations. It was not supposed to be that way. God's plan was that Israel would be one united nation, 12 tribes together that were worshiping God, um, aligned underneath the Davidic king. That was the plan. But we're in that period where the two nations have split into two. So only two of the tribes have stayed loyal to the line of Davidic kings. And then the other 10 tribes have broken off to do their own thing. So they have their own kingly line and they've appointed their own priesthood and they've basically come up with their own unique religion that they're following. And so while neither one, nor, uh, southern nor northern kingdom, neither one uh, worships God very consistently, the southern king does better than the northern kingdom. And so the northern kingdom begins to spin out of control much faster. And so we've been going through this section of Second Kings where the narrator has been letting us look at this train wreck that is the northern kingdom. Okay, as things get worse and worse, as one evil king comes to the throne after the next. But one of the remarkable things in it is, even though it's consistently evil kings, even though the people are rebelling against God, even though it's, it's widespread darkness, in the middle of it all, God is still faithfully showing himself to the northern kingdom. He is still se sending prophets so that God's voice is still being heard. He's still doing miracles. This is one of those periods I've mentioned a bunch of times where more miracles are being done during the ministries of Elijah and Elisha who are prophets in that northern kingdom, the worst of the kingdoms, that God's still doing this huge number of miracles. So even as they turn from God and worship false gods, Yahweh is still reminding them that he is the true God. And that's the main thing that's going on in First and Second Kings. So I say that just to emphasize, there are all sorts of wonderful, intriguing, captivating stories in First and Second Kings. But remember, all of this isn't here just to give us captivating stories. It's here to teach us about God. So the God of Elijah and Elisha is the same God we worship today. And it's here to teach us about our own hearts. Because the sins these people struggled with are the very same sins we struggle with. So time has passed, years have gone by, but the human heart hasn't changed. Okay, so what we're being shown here about God and what we're being shown here about the sins that are latent to our own hearts are still the same. So that's what we're trying to focus on in all of this. So we're gonna try to get through most of, if not all of, Second uh, Kings chapter eight tonight. So we're just gonna start reading. There's a couple of different stories that are grouped together here. 2 Kings chapter 8, here's how it begins, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines seven years. Now, pause and make sure you remember. Do you remember who this lady is that he's speaking to here? Whose son he had restored to life. Do you remember that lady? Her story is told back in 2 Kings chapter 4. This is the Shunammite woman. 
This is the woman who, her and her husband, lived in the, the village of Shunem, and they're apparently a fairly well-to-do family. And this is in that time period when Elisha is, is kind of a traveling prophet. He's got an itinerant ministry where he's moving all over the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, imagine how difficult life was when your life is traveling all over in a day where there's no comfort in and there's no restaurants, right? It's difficult. Where are you staying every night? Where are you eating every night? So do you remember what the Shunammite woman did for Elisha? The first thing they did is anytime he's passing through the area, her and her husband show him hospitality and they invite him to their table. So they give Elisha, this prophet of God, food. They give him a place to eat. Then what's the second thing that they do? That's right. She, she adds a, a big to-do thing on the honey-do list for her husband. And she has him build an apartment on their house, on the roof of their house. She has him build this apartment so that not only can Elisha stop there and have a meal, but so Elisha has somewhere to stay so he can go up there, get a good night's sleep, grab some food before he goes on. Well, eventually, Elisha, she's shown him such kindness. Elisha decides that he wants to do something for her in return. You remember this whole story? And so he asks his servant, what does she need? And the servant's response is basically nothing. She has plenty of money. She has plenty of land. She doesn't need any favors from the king. But the servant says, I have noticed one thing. What's the one thing? She's barren. She doesn't have any children. And so Elisha prays and God blesses her with a child. So the next year, she ends up having a son. Well, fast forward a few years. You remember when that son is early elementary, he comes home one day from the fields working with his father with a splitting headache. He crawls up in his mom's lap, and what ends up happening? He ends up dying in his mother's arms. So this grieving mom now takes this dead boy to this apartment that belongs to Elisha. She lays the boy on Elisha's bed. She gets on a donkey, and she goes tearing out. It's about a day's journey. She goes tearing out to find Elisha. So, so she's grieving, she doesn't understand, she's still clinging to God at the same time in the middle of all this, she lets Elisha know what's going on, Elisha, he doesn't, God had not even told him any of this is happening, so he busts it to get back to the house, it's been a couple days by the time he gets there, this boy is, is dead dead, right, he is cold, rigor mortis setting in dead by this point, but Elisha gets back and he prays over the boy's body and God brings the boy back to life. Okay, that's this woman. And what we're finding out now is that after that happened, Elisha's relationship didn't end after that miracle. So now we've jumped forward a little bit in the story, and a little while down the road, God reveals to Elisha there's going to be a famine in the land of Israel. Now, famines were usually associated with drought. So if there was a drought, you would have a crop failure. A crop failure means a food failure. And if you stack up a few drought plague years in a row, you're in trouble. You might could survive one year with poor crops where you have some surpluses you can buy, a couple years of poor crops, and everybody's in trouble. Well, that's what God tells Elisha is coming. And so Elisha passes that news on to this lady, and he tells her that, that her and her family should leave not just the city, but they should leave the nation. They should move to another nation for these seven years. Now, that's a big ask. How would you respond if you were asked not just to move from Blackshear to Alma, but if you were asked to move from Blackshear to Budapest? Well, he's asking her to move nations, and she does it. Why does she do it? Well, because she recognizes that Elisha represents the Lord. So this isn't just a word from Elisha to her. This is a word from God to her. 
And so she obeys it. Now, just to back up real quick before we keep going, think of one of the great things this is showing us. Right, we keep seeing this in First and Second Kings, but you'll notice neither in Second Kings 4 nor, nor here in Second Kings 8 are we told the name of this woman. So this is another one of the nameless individuals in First and Second Kings, and yet we see God caring for this nameless woman. That, that's a helpful thing to remember because we can have a tendency in our minds to think of uh, Christians in sort of tears, that here are the pastors I really like listening to and the podcast people I really like, and they got to be up here. They're the ones God really pays attention to because they're the headliners, and then there's all these other tears, and then I'm somewhere down here, and maybe I'll get God's attention somewhere down the line. But all of these stories in First and Second Kings remind us it's, God doesn't just care for the headliner Christians. God cares for his people, and he's taking care of this mother and her son. Okay, so they're going to leave for seven years during this famine. All right, keep reading the story. So here's what happens next. And it came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, and she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. And then the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. And now it happened as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed a certain, a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land until now. Okay, so get what happens. She's gone for seven years. She comes back home at the end of seven years, and there's a problem when she comes home. What's the problem? Well, while she's gone, her land and her house have been confiscated. And it's probably the government that has confiscated. It wasn't unusual in these days for the government just to take over any abandoned land that they wanted. And so she comes home, and the government, it seems, has taken her land. So she's going to have to appeal to the king to get her land back. But there's another problem that seems to be going on here. Have you noticed who hasn't been mentioned in the story? Elisha hasn't been mentioned, but neither has her husband. Now back in 2 Kings 4, her husband was mentioned. Well now in 2 Kings 8, there's no mention of her husband at all. And that's probably because somewhere along the line, her husband has passed away. That's the one reason she's the one who ends up making the appeal to the king. And what this is emphasizing is just showing us how much the deck is stacked against this woman. Because she's trying to get land back, but in Israel, who did the inheritance pass through? Land rights pass through the husband. Land rights pass through the men. So maybe if her husband was there, he could go appeal to the king. Maybe the king would give land back to the husband, but with the husband gone, she can appeal, but the chances of her getting her land back are almost none. Okay, so she's going to go see the king to try to get land back. That's, that's the way the story is being set up. But on the day that she's going to see the king, what else is going on in the king's chamber? Do you remember Gehazi? The guy who's mentioned, who was Gehazi? He had been, for years, Elisha's servant. He, he's been Elisha's right-hand man for all of these years. All of the miracles Elisha has done, Gehazi's been there with him. Now, what happened with Gehazi? 
Do y'all remember that part of the story? He gets booted out because of greed. He's the one who goes to Naaman and tries to pilfer some money from Naaman behind Elisha's back. And so he gets kicked out of that job. God strikes him with leprosy. Now Elisha, uh, Gehazi's back in the story. He's in the king's chamber. Why is the king interviewing Gehazi? What's he telling the king? He's, he's interviewing Gehazi about some of the great works that Elisha has done in his ministry. In other words, the king's wanting to hear from Gehazi about the great miracles that Elisha has done. And Gehazi's the perfect one to interview because he's been right there with Elisha for most of his ministry. Now, now of course, some of Elisha's ministry was done in public. Some of his miracles were done in public. But if you remember back to Elisha's story, he's done a lot of miracles that were private miracles where there was only one or a handful of people. So imagine the king, he's called Gehazi in, he loves hearing all these miracle stories and Gehazi starts recounting some of the private miracles. Hey, there was this time when um, Elisha was traveling and a mob of young men came out and started harassing him and Elisha cursed them and two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of those boys. And there was this other time where um, Elisha was out with a group of guys cutting wood and a guy's axe head fell into the water and Elisha went over and that iron axe head floated to the top of the water like a cork. And then he reaches the climax. And there was this time where this woman's son died. And I actually, this is Gehazi, I actually got to the room before Elisha did. You remember that in the story? Gehazi gets there first, and Gehazi goes in, and he finds out how dead this boy is, that the boy's laid out, and he is ashen dead. And then Gehazi's able to tell him, but Elisha came in and prayed, and when he prayed, God restored the boy. And think right about here. He's reached the climax of the story, telling it with all kind of flair and gusto, and who comes walking into the king's chamber? This woman he's talking about and her son. Imagine Gehazi's jaw dropping and he says to the king, that's her. And that's the boy that Elisha raised from the dead. And the king's so taken aback, he immediately calls the woman over and he gets her to validate the story that Gehazi has shared. And he is so enthralled by it all that what's, what does the king do for her? He, he not only restores her land, he goes beyond that. And he says, calculate all the money that's been made off of her land for the last seven years and pay it back to her. So she has all this income. Now, think about what's being highlighted to us here in this story. Or, or how about this? What are the odds of this woman being gone for seven years and she just happens to come home at this time? And more than that, what are the odds that she comes home at this time and, and just so happens decide, decides to go see the king on this day? It's pure coincidence, right? Because you could, we're not even at the end of it yet. More than just this day, what are the odds that she decides to go see the king at just this hour while Gehazi's there? And more specifically, that she decides to go see the king at just this minute right when Gehazi is telling the king the story about her son being raised from the dead. What are the odds of that? Well, the odds are zero unless there is someone directing traffic. The odds are zero unless there's someone orchestrating all of this and moving the pieces. And that's the point that's being made in this story, and it'll come back around at the end of chapter 8. The point that's being made is this stuff didn't just happen. 
it happened because God orchestrated it all to happen this way. This is God moving everything into place. This is another one of those great places in First and Second Kings that I've made this point. Remember how often in First and Second Kings I've emphasized there are lots of chapters in these two books where there aren't any miracle stories. There's not some grand thing where God oversteps the bounds of natural law to provide for his people. But you've got to recognize that God's providence is just as amazing as miracles are. The fact that we have a God who governs the stream of history and moves all the pieces into place according to his plan to bring himself glory, to provide for his people, to accomplish his purposes, that's what this story is showing us. Here's the way providence is defined in the London Baptist Confession of Faith. I like this definition. It says, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most holy and wise providence to the end for the which they were created according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. In other words, to say that in short, God governs his world. God moves the pieces of his world into place as he sees fit. Now, it's not always this drastic, but it's always there. And sometimes it is this drastic. There's a great story um, back in the 1920s, not long after Dallas Seminary had started. Right after the seminary started, it was on the brink of folding. So they almost had grand opening and grand closing within like the same year. They had, didn't have the money coming in that they were expecting. Uh, the bank was getting ready to foreclose. In fact, the bank had told them that they had until noon on a certain day to have in a certain amount of money that they owed or the bank was going to foreclose and close the doors. And so the, the founders of Dallas Seminary met together that morning. The money was due at noon. They met together that morning to pray about what was going on in the seminary. And one of their founders was uh, Harry Ironside. And Dr. Ironside began to pray in their meeting, and he, he sort of was a kind of blunt, practical sort of prayer. And he said, Lord, you, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. We pray that you would sell some of those cattle and send the money to us. This is Dallas Seminary. And, and as they were in the office praying, uh, a Texas rancher walked into the foyer of the president's office and told the secretary that he had actually just sold two trailer loads of cattle. And he was selling the cattle, actually. He had a business deal that he was selling the cattle to start this business deal. And that morning, after he had sold the cattle, the business deal had collapsed. And he felt like the Lord was directing him to give the money to the seminary. And so he handed this check over to the secretary, who knew those guys were inside in this prayer meeting. And so she takes the check goes in, interrupts these men in their prayer meeting and hands the check to the, the president of the seminary and he looks at the check which, which is almost exactly the amount of money that was due that day and he saw the heading that it was from a rancher in Texas, this Texas ranch and he said, Harry, I guess God sold those cattle. But it's not, God's providence isn't always as dramatic as that, right? But again, it is always at work. And it's always at work in a thousand different ways that we're not even aware of. Okay, so this story's here in part just to, to remind us to rest in God's providence. That I don't have to see some grand miracle to know that God is there and God is at work. 
God is at work always. Uh, you can even say it this way. God is never doing nothing. Trust that in your life. God is never doing nothing. God is always at work. He's always doing something. In fact, he's always doing dozens of things that we're not even aware that he's doing. Okay, so that's one lesson here. Here's another thing I want you to think about in this story. Who's the king here? This, this is a king in the northern empire. It's King Jehoram. Do you remember what King Jehoram is like? This is the king from 2 Kings 6 and 7. Do you remember when there's the famine in the land? And do you remember what this king wanted to do with Elisha during the famine? Anybody remember this story? He sent one of his henchmen to assassinate Elisha during the famine. So th this king is no friend of Elisha. This, ki this king is no follower of Yahweh. Yet, this king has Gehazi there because he wants to hear stories from Elisha's ministry. He loves hearing these miracle stories. Everybody likes to hear a good miracle story, right? So here's a king who loves hearing these fascinating stories, but you gotta get, but this is also a king who has never actually trusted in God. Is it possible to be fascinated with all the flashes in Christianity? Is it possible to love all the fascinating stories of the Bible and yet never actually repent and believe in the God of the Bible? It absolutely is, and I say that just as a warning because we've spent months now in these fascinating stories in First and Second Kings. We're not studying stories in First and Second Kings for entertainment value. Pagans will listen to the stories of First and Second Kings for entertainment value. We don't study this for entertainment. We study it to be changed. We study it to know God. Okay, so it's a pagan king who doesn't care about God, who's interested in miracles, and we're singing all this God's wonderful hand of providence. That's the first section. All right, let's jump to the second section. Pick up now in verse 7. Here's the next story. Then Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. And the king said to Hazael, Take a present in your hand and go to meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? So Haziel went to meet him and took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus, 40 camel loads. And he came and stood before him and said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you saying, Shall I recover from this disease? Okay, we've got a complete scene shift. And now the story has shifted to Elisha. Now there's a backstory to this that you need to remember, so just follow with me for a minute. Think back to 1 Kings. Do you remember in 1 Kings... The, the time in Elijah's life. Elijah is the, the man who mentored Elisha. Think back to Elijah's life right after there's that grand miracle at Mount Carmel where he confronts the prophets of Baal and he prays and God sends fire on the altar. Y'all remember all that, right? And do you remember what happens with Elijah right after that? Do you remember how despondent Elijah gets? And the reason he gets despondent is God has just done this wonderful miracle and yet what changed? Nothing changed. God just did this miracle and the nation of Israel is still turned away from God. And King Ahab is still on the throne. And Jezebel still wants Elijah dead. And so Elijah is depressed because it seems to him this miracle has happened and nothing has changed. So if miracles can't change things, how's anything ever going to change? Because miracles seem to Elijah like that's God's best stuff. That's the grade A stuff. And so if, if miracles can't change what's happening, nothing's ever going to change. And so do you remember how God ends up bringing Elijah to Mount Horeb? And do you remember what God teaches Elijah at Mount Horeb? 
It's one of my favorite stories in, in, in that whole section. And it's where God does all of those grand things, where Elijah's in the cave and God sends lightning flashing across the sky. And then there's this wind that blows that seems like it's going to knock the mountain down. And then an earthquake and everything begins to tremble. And we're told at each step of that, all this grand phenomena is happening. And we're told God wasn't, wasn't in any of it. But then you remember what happens last? There is this gentle breeze. And we're told that God was there. And then God teaches Elijah a lesson. And the lesson that God teaches Elijah is that most of the time, God is not at work accomplishing his purposes in the grand and the flashy. That most of what God does, he accomplishes through the imperceptible breeze of providence. And so Elijah felt like because the grand miracle didn't change anything, that nothing could ever change. But God lets him know that he was still accomplishing his will, but he was going to be accomplishing his will in a thousand behind-the-scene ways. And he tells Elijah three of those ordinary means that God was going to bring about to accomplish his purposes. Okay, this is bringing us up to our story. So three of the things he told Elijah is, one, he was going to have Elijah anoint a man named Elisha to carry forward his prophetic ministry. The second thing God tells him is that he's going to appoint a new king in Israel, a man named Jehu, who's going to bring judgment on the house of Ahab. The third thing that God tells him is he's going to bring a new king to the throne in Syria, a king named Hazael, who God is going to use to bring judgment on the nation of Israel. So God told Elijah that years earlier, that he's going to bring these normal pieces into place as part of his plan. And so far, the only thing that's happened is Elijah's ministry has passed to Elisha. What's going to happen in chapter 8 and 9 and 10 is we're going to see those other two pieces now come into play as God keeps bringing kings into power and moving pieces into place to accomplish his plan. So now we're going to see Hazael. So Elisha goes, he leaves Israel and goes up to Syria. And he gets to Syria, and the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, is, is sick. Now, Ben-Hadad has been reigning for a long time at this point. He's been king for about 40 years. He's an older man now. He gets ill. Of course, this is a day where any sickness might be the last one, might be fatal. And so he's not sure if this is going to be it or not. So he wants some sort of divine word to let him know if he's going to survive this sickness. And so he sends one of his lieutenants. I said that word funny. Lieutenants. He sends one of his lieutenants, um, Hazael, to see Elisha, to inquire. But he sends Hazael with 40 camel loads of goods. Now, why is he doing that? This isn't just a gift. Do you remember us talking about how they view prophecy? This isn't really a gift. This is a bribe. Because they had this warped understanding of prophecy that comes up over and over again in First and Second Kings. And the way they understood it was they thought the power rested with the prophet. So their understanding was the prophet has the power, so anything the prophet says, God is obligated to do. So if you can bribe the prophet, if you can get the prophet to say a positive message about you, then you're kind of tying God's hand, and God has to do whatever the prophet decrees. So, so they, they had this backwards understanding of prophecy. We understand with the prophets, the power didn't rest with the prophet, the power rested with God. And God wasn't obligated to do what the prophet said. The prophets were obligated to say whatever God told them to say. But this is Hazael trying to, in his pagan way, manipulate Elisha to get a prophecy. So is he going to survive? That's the question. Here's the answer. And it's not crystal clear, the answer, initially. 
And Elisha said to him, go say to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. And then he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. Now that whole thing is a little weird, right? What's going on there? And Haziel said, why is my Lord weeping? He answered, because I know the evil that you'll do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you'll kill with the sword, and you'll dash their children and rip open their women with child. So Haziel said, but what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? And Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you will become king over Israel. So what's Elisha's answer? So the king sends word, find out if this disease is going to take my life. And what's Elisha's answer? Yes and no. And that's a weird answer. What do you mean yes and no? Well, we find out what he's saying is, well, no, this disease is not going to take your life. You, you will, all things being equal, the king will recover from the disease, but he's still going to die. Because it's not going to be the disease that kills him. Guess who's going to kill him? Yeah, Hazael's going to kill him. And that's why after he says this, do you see how it says, after he said this, he set his countenance in a stare. So Elisha gives this message, yes and no, and then he stares at Hazael. So what an awkward moment, right? He says this and then just locks eyes because what's happening is God has revealed to Elisha the, the treachery that's going on in Hazael's heart. Elisha knows what's going on. So he locks a gaze on Hazael until Hazael is ashamed, until finally he feels the guilt of it. And then Elisha begins to weep. And when Hazael, again, it's just getting more and more strange for Hazael. And said, what are you weeping for? Elisha says, God has shown me what's going to happen. You're going to kill scores of young men, and you're going to massacre women, and you're going to massacre children. And Hazael goes, what do you mean? I'm a dog. In other words, I'm a nobody. How would I ever do something like that? And Elisha says, God has shown me you're going to become the king of Syria. Now, just I, I try to point these out as we go. This is another one of those little places where archaeology has confirmed this, that there was a king who came to the throne in Syria named Hazael. And one of the interesting things is in the annals of Syrian history, Hazael is identified as being the son of a nobody. That's how they labeled him in their annals. It's a way of saying that he, he was not of royal blood. He was not in the family of kings. He is, uh, he is an interloper. He's a usurper who comes to the throne of Syria. Okay, so this is Hazael, and this is going to end up being the beginning of lots and lots of trouble for the nation of Israel. So um, let me say a couple more things about this, and we'll go to the next story. Let's read verses 14 and 15. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, what did Elisha say to you? This is the king talking to Hazael. What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me you would surely recover. But it happened on the next day that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face so that he died. And Hazael reigned in his place. Do you see why Elisha said, well, yes and no. Is he going to recover from the disease? Well, he would have recovered from the disease if Hazael wouldn't have suffocated him to death. So the king dies, and now Haziel is in power, and Haziel is going to, he is going to be God's instrument of judgment on the northern kingdom. He, he's going to inflict massive, massive damage. Uh, 
And Elisha knows that. Now get this. Get what's, happen- what's happening in this story. Elisha knows that this is going to be God's just, righteous judgment. Elisha knows that this is a certainty and that God is right to do this. And yet, Elisha still weeps about it. And I just want to highlight that. Um, we recognize that God's judgment is righteous. God is right to judge. We understand that, right? We understand that God is glorified in his judgment. But it's still right for our hearts to break over God's judgment. In fact, you even sort of get that idea with, with the way the Bible describes God in judgment. You, you have verses like Ezekiel, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, right? This is why it's often said um, that if you ever preach or teach about hell, you never preach or teach about hell with a smile on your face. Because we can recognize that God's judgment is a right, righteous thing. It is a good thing. And yet we should still have hearts that grieve over it. This is one of the things you see consistently in the ministry of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is living in a time where he is constantly prophesying uh, about the certainty of God's judgment and about the rightness of God's judgment. And yet what is Jeremiah known as? He's known as the weeping prophet. Was he weeping because why? Well, because he knows God's judgment is coming. He knows it's right. He's prophesying that it's coming, and yet his heart still grieves over those who will fall under God's judgment. That's, that's an important balance to strike. Is It's important that we identify God's judgment is always righteous. We don't cower away from it. We're not ashamed of the fact that we serve a God who judges that we serve a God who hands down righteous consequences. We're not ashamed of that. And yet our hearts should still break over the, the truth and the reality of, of those who fall under God's judgment. Okay, so that's, that's what's happening here with Elisha. Everybody tracking with that part of the story. All right, let's jump forward to the next. I got a bunch of verses to skip past. Here we go. Second Kings 8. Now in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Which, which kingdom are we looking at now? We're looking at Judah. Now, that should grab your attention because this is the first time that the story has focused on the southern kingdom since the end of 1 Kings. So for, for most of the story, we've been looking at the, the kings in the northern kingdom. Well, now we've turned back to the southern kingdom. Who was the last king we looked at in the southern kingdom? Anybody remember? His name's given here. Last king we looked at was King Jehoshaphat. What was, what was Jehoshaphat like? Um, he left some of the high places. But Jehoshaphat overall was a good king. Jehoshaphat loved the Lord. He instituted some, some good religious changes in the land. He, he was genuine in his love for the Lord. But do you remember what the problem was with Jehoshaphat? What's that? Yeah, he was a yes man, particularly with whom? Yeah, so the big problem with, with Jehoshaphat, he loved the Lord, but he was constantly making foolish alliances. Particularly, he was always um, making alliances with these godless pagan kings. And how did those alliances always turn out? 
disastrous. In fact, on more than one occasion, Jehoshaphat almost lost his life because of those foolish alliances. And I've made the point several times with Jehoshaphat. Is it possible for there to be someone who genuinely knows the Lord, genuinely loves the Lord, but constantly gets themselves in bad situations because of the foolish people they ally themselves with? 100%. Jehoshaphat is an example of that. Okay, so Jehoshaphat has now died, and Jehoshaphat's son and his name is given in the story, Jehoshaphat's son, Joram, has become king. Now that's the, do you see these two names right here? Jehoram and Joram. This is a tricky part in Israel's history because the king of the northern empire and the king of the southern empire were, had the same name for a brief period of time. So it would be like George Washington's president in America at the same time King George is on the throne in England. And so you got a George and a George. Well, that's the way it was in Israel for a while. And Jehoram and Joram, that's actually the same name. Joram is just a shortened form of this. And so when you read Joram or Jehoram, you've got to be careful about who it's applying to. So Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, comes to the throne. At the same time, there's a Joram who's on the throne in the northern kingdom. That's some fantastic penmanship there, isn't it? So what was Jehoram like? How is this king identified? What does it mean that he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel? What were the kings of Israel like, the northern kingdom? Godless, evil, idolatrous. Wait a second, though. This is Jehoshaphat's son. Why doesn't he walk in the way of Jehoshaphat? Why does he walk in the way of the family of Ahab? We're given a hint about the problem here. Who did he marry? This is another one of those foolish alliances that Jehoshaphat made. We've talked about this one before. Remember, Jehoshaphat, to make an alliance with the northern empire, he has his son marry the daughter of the wicked king Ahab in the north. Because surely, if they had an alliance, they would be better prepared if the Syrians invaded, and it's just a marriage, right? Well, how, how, big, of a, how big of an impact does marriage have on your life? Yeah, is it fair to say that, that other than turning to Christ, it's one of the most impactful decisions you'll ever make in your life? And if you end up marrying somebody who doesn't know and love the Lord, it will have massive, potentially legacy-leaving repercussions on your life. Okay, so it's always a good thing to say to young folks, single folks, it is better to not marry at all than to marry the wrong person. It is better to stay single your whole life than to marry someone who does not love the Lord. So this is a man, Jehoshaphat's son, who ends up marrying a godless woman, and it, it ends up, we'll have to see this in the coming chapters, almost his whole family line ends up getting wiped out because of this one godless marriage that gets introduced into the family line. Okay, this is an evil woman, and you'll see how evil she is in the days ahead. Okay, so this is Jehoram. This is um, the son of Jehoshaphat, this evil king. All right, keep going. I was going to skip this. I want to read it. Um, uh, Thomas Fuller was a Puritan writer, and he was talking about tracing the genealogy of Jesus through all these different kings. And he was making the point that he noticed as he was studying these different kings how it bounces back and forth. Sometimes you'll have a good king who has a bad son. Sometimes you'll have a bad king who has a good son. And he said this about it, and this resonated with me. He said, I find the genealogy of my Savior strangely checkered with four remarkable changes in four immediate generations. This is going through First and Second Kings. 
Rehoboam begot Abiah. That is a bad father and a bad son. Abiah begot Asa. That's a bad father and a good son. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. That's a good father and a good son. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. That's a good father and a bad son. And then here's this conclusion. I see, Lord, from hence that my father's piety cannot be handed on. That's bad news for me. But I see also that actual impiety is not always hereditary. That is good news for my son. That's good news for my son, that uh, a father's failures do not necessarily determine the path of the children, just like a father's piety doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to be pious. Okay, so you see this kind of movement back and forth among the kings. Okay, keep going. Second Kings eight nineteen. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David as he promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. What's that verse highlighting? So it's asking the question, we just saw that there comes a king in the line of David, Jehoram, who is evil, wicked, godless, idolatrous. And so the question is, well, if if there's an evil king, why doesn't God just wipe them out and start over again? If things are going in such a bad direction, why not just stamp it out and start anew? And what's the answer? God doesn't start anew because God had made a covenant with David. God had promised David that he would preserve David's line and that eventually there would come a son in the line of David who would sit on David's throne forever, right? This gets filled in in other, think of Isaiah 9, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and he'll sit on the throne of David, his father, forever. Okay, so God had promised that he's going to extend David's family line to the Messiah. So God doesn't wipe it out and start over. This is good news for us again. Because God always keeps his covenants. God never breaks his covenants. That's good for us because the the salvation we have is a covenant, right? It's the new covenant that we're part of. And God's made all sorts of promises in the new covenant. You can read them in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And we have the promise that God never breaks. He never fails to keep his covenants. Because that's why he doesn't wipe the family line out and start over again. Okay, a few more verses. In his days, this is King Jehoram, in his days Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So Joram went with Zer and all his chariots with him. And then he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots and the troops fled to their tents. And thus Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. Now just pause there for a minute. So what this is showing us is it's wanting us to see the decline that the southern kingdom is in. So as these kings drift further and further away from God, they also begin to drift further and further away from God's blessings. So this is a far cry from what they were under the reigns of uh, David and Solomon. Under David and Solomon, they're vanquishing all of their enemies and they're making everybody pay them tribute. Well, that's not the case anymore. Uh, Judah is a paper tiger now. They don't have any power. So Edom is a country to the south that they had conquered, that they made pay them annual tribute. Well, now Edom says, we're not doing it anymore. And so Jehoram's going to flex his muscles and he's going to put them back in line. So he goes down and he ends up surrounded so that he barely escapes with his life. And Edom is never brought into subjugation again. And then the next step, the, the last line there, and Libna revolted. Now Libna was actually a city inside of Judah. So now we have a city inside of Israel. 
that's rebelling against the king. And so the, just the picture is, not only can they not defeat their enemies anymore, they're, they're starting to come unraveled from the inside. Okay, so everything within the nation of Israel is now beginning to fall apart. Verse 23, now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Now the, the author of Kings is just very blunt with it that he rested with his fathers. Joram finally dies. If you want more details on how Joram dies, go back and read Second Chronicles 2021 about his life. So what you get in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles tells a lot of the same stories, follows a lot of the same uh, timeline, but it will focus on some of the kings that First and Second Kings don't focus on. And what we find out in Second Chronicles is that this King Joram, he doesn't just die, he dies a horrible, horrible, horrible death. That God's judgment on King Joram is God afflicts him with this um, intestinal disease so that he spends years of his life with terrible pain. He, um, his, I'm trying to think of a his, his intestines end up coming out of his body while he is still living. It is a horrible death. And so this is a king that dies under the judgment of God, and he, his death is reflective of that judgment. So he dies, and Ahaziah becomes king. So let's look at Ahaziah very quickly. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. Quick pause. So he ends up becoming king. What we're not told here that we are told in 2 Chronicles is the reason Ahaziah becomes king, because Ahaziah is actually the youngest of Joram's children. And the reason he becomes king is, again, under God's judgment, all of Jehoram's other kids have either been killed in battle or they've been taken captive by the enemy. So Ahaziah is the only one of the sons left. So he becomes king because he's the only son left standing when he's 22 years old. And how long does he reign? He reigns for a year. And that immediately brings up questions, right? Why in the world would a king only reign for a year? Well, chapter 9 next week is going to, or two weeks from now, He's going to show us why. Keep, keep reading about his story. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. And who, who are we talking about again here? This is Ahab's daughter. So her granddad was Omri. Her father was Ahab. Joram, her husband, has died, but she's still around. And guess what she's doing while she's still around? You think she's influencing her son, the new king, for good or for evil? Yeah, she is still going to be pushing the nation toward idolatry, pushing the king. You'll see in the coming weeks, she's actually going to take the throne of Israel eventually for a number of years and do her best to kill her own family, to wipe out her own grandchildren, to keep them from coming to the throne in her place. Verse 27, and he, this is Ahaziah, and he walked in the way of the house of Ahab. Again, why is he going to walk in the house of Ahab? Because his mom is the daughter of Ahab. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab. For he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Now he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Haziel, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. Then King Joram went back to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him at Ramah, when he fought against Haziel, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, 
went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was seen. Now, let me get just one last picture of what's happening here. So Ahaziah in the south, Joram in the north, have an alliance. They're friends. Ahaziah sends his troops to fight with Joram's troops against Syria. Joram ends up getting wounded in battle. So he retreats to Jezreel. He's recovering. He's getting a little rest and relaxation. Well, while he's there, Ahaziah, the king in the south, goes up to visit the king of the north. So here's, here's what that means. It means the king of Judah and the king of Israel are in the same place at the same time. Do you, do you remember how we started this talking about God's providence? How God moves pieces into place according to his plan. Now we started 2 Kings 8 with how that's a blessing for God's people, how God moves pieces into place to accomplish his plans, to work in the lives of his people. Well, what we're finding out now is God's providence is also at work in judgment because God has now brought the king of Judah and the king of Israel, this is the first time we've seen it in the story, to the same city, and what they don't know is they have walked straight into the judgment of God. And that judgment is gonna begin to unfold in 2 Kings chapter nine. So let me say this and we'll close. The providence of God is a wonderfully sweet thing for those who know him and trust him because it reminds us that there is nothing that comes into your life as a Christian that God is not in control of and that God does not intend and does not use for your good. It is a sweet truth. Providence is sweet for God's people. But the doctrine of God's providence is a dreadfully terrifying truth for those who do not know God. Because what the doctrine of providence means is in your rebellion, you will never outrun God and you will never outmaneuver God because God is always an infinite number of moves ahead of you. So you will not escape God's judgment. And these two kings are going to find out the reality of that. And we'll see that in the coming weeks. All right, that is 2 Kings chapter 8. All right, thank you all for hanging in there. Let's pray and we'll discuss.